I'd like you to turn with me, if you would. We're in a continuing study through First and Second Corinthians, and our base, our home base, is Second Corinthians eight. And you can look there. We'll be in a number of places today, so have your Bibles or your digital pads handy so we can move around. But it, uh, you probably remember uh, there is a story of an elephant rope. A man was passing through uh, elephants and suddenly stopped, confused by the fact that these huge creatures were being held in place by only the smallest of ropes tied to their front leg. No chains, no cages. It was obvious that the elephants could at any point in time uh, break away from their bonds, but for some reason they did not. He saw a trainer nearby. He asked why these elephants just stood there and made no attempt to get away. Well, the trainer said, when they are very young and much smaller, we use the same size rope to tie them at that age. It's enough to hold them. But as they grow, they are conditioned to believe they can't break away and they believe the rope can still hold them so they never try. The man walking through was amazed. The elephants could at any time break free of their bonds, but because they believed that they couldn't, they were stuck right where they were. And like the elephants in the story, I think many people, especially in the church, are connected to the thought that they are solely responsible for their security. I think that they demonstrate their bondage, which is really a type of, of love of money, by how they think about and evaluate what they have. They could break free at any time into the freedom of handling their job and their income and their material possessions in the way the scriptures clearly demonstrate how they're to be handled. And they could walk away in the freedom of knowing that God already has a plan for their security and has clearly demonstrated that all throughout the word of God. But they don't think they can. And so they continue to live in bondage to the fear of the unknown when God has been responsible for bringing them their portion all of their lives. And because they live that way, he is not able to bless them in a way that he would like them to be blessed because they refuse to break free of their love of money. And so they work their job and they worry about their future and they stay tied to that one spot when they could easily break free. I think that we find that perhaps, and as we've looked in this passage, which we're continuing to build this foundation for an understanding of the New Testament standard for giving we see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which has to do with managing material things. And as we've seen over the last several weeks, as we've begun this study, it's a consistent theme in the Word of God, conquering these character issues related to material things. And in order to get to the point where we can go verse by verse, through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and not just scratch our head and say, there's no way I could possibly do that. We have to lay a solid foundation. And so that's what we're doing. And we've gone through our selected passages in really the verse, first five to kind of get a feel of what that looked like as the Apostle Paul came to Macedonia and viewed what was going on and thought it was so important what they were doing that he wanted to make sure that everyone understood how that worked. And we've gone through some selected passages in order to lay that foundation. And, and if you have found in some of those passages over the last couple of weeks that you love money from the biblical definition, not from our own deceitful hearts, or if you found or, or perhaps will find that your attitude towards material things or the way you've been handling them, which, which reveals your attitude towards them, is not in line with what the Bible says, then the question is, what should you do? Well, the first thing that we, we said was this, admit to God that what you've been doing is a sin because that's what happens when you depart from what the Word of God says uh, that we're to do. 
And there's no reservations. Just say, Lord, I haven't been handling this right. I haven't been thinking about this right or correctly, according to your word. And remember, when you admit that that's a sin, remember that you don't have to answer to sin because it isn't your master. And Romans chapter 8 tells us to, Romans chapter 6 rather, tells us to yield our members uh, to works of righteousness. In other words, bring your thoughts and bring your actions in line with God's instruction. That's what it looks like to change direction and to do what you're supposed to do. And here are some suggestions just based on the scriptures we've looked at so far. And if you've missed any of these, you can catch up online or on Spotify and, and listen to these and know where we've been. I won't go back all through them, but I'll just say this, as you've been thinking about some of the things we've talked about, some suggestions are set up some checks and balances and ask yourself a few questions as you go about your daily routine. Is it okay that I don't have this certain thing? Maybe it's something that you've wanted for a long time. Maybe it's something that you've been saving for. Maybe it's something that you had in your mind that if you ever got to the point where you got to a certain income level, this is what you would have. Ask you, your, yourself, if if, is it okay if I never have it? Is, it? is that okay? Are we gonna be fine with that? And ask yourself this question. Why do I go to work? Why do I go to work and do what I do? And ask this question. Would you be content with less than you currently have? How about this? Do you share? Not just out of your abundance, but regularly, faithfully, generously, sacrificial. And then as you think about your life, pour your life out for the things that honor God. Work your job and take care of your responsibilities there because God's watching and it's for him that you do it. Remember Colossians chapter 3 verse 23 really solidifies that idea for us that we don't just work for the person who employs us. Paul says to the church in Colossae, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. So really what's coming from the Lord is, is so much greater than what you get from men. He's your focus. But we find also in that same passage, as you work hard for the Lord, you're also adorning the gospel and making the gospel look good. So somebody sees you working hard and they wonder why that is. So work your job, take care of your responsibilities because the Lord's watching. Realize that it's actually the Lord Christ who you serve in whatever you do. So that's, these are some questions that you can ask yourself and as you get those answers, start to bring them in line with what this word of God says because that's gonna put you in a place where we can read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and begin to say, okay, I can see how that's the case because they're just gonna resonate with everything that we've seen up to this point and what we'll see after this. So as you realize it's the Lord Christ whom you serve and you're working as unto the Lord, realize that then just let the money and the things come from God as he distributes it in his sovereignty. And don't say you do a better job if you were paid more. Just set your heart on glorifying God and if he distributes wealth to you, that's his choice. Don't set your money on things. Don't set your money on heart on money and things. It's a hard attitude and that has nothing to do with circumstances. And we saw last week as Jesus was, was uh, teaching about material things as it related to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus' change in heart towards money was evidence of his what? Of his conversion. In fact, that's precisely what Jesus said. Salvation has come to this house because of Zacchaeus' understanding of how he should be handling what he had. And that was completely different than how he had, he had perceived it before. And we also saw on the other side, as it related to the rich young ruler, his unwillingness to change his heart towards material things was evidence of his rejection of salvation. And he becomes the prime example of Luke 8.34, 8, 8.24, we saw last time, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because wealth is deceitful and makes you think that you have everything and that there's no problems and that you're secure, see. And this rich young ruler also illustrated Matthew 
One of the reasons the rich young ruler seeks out Jesus was to inquire about the kingdom of God. So obviously the seed had been sown in his life. He'd heard about Jesus. He'd heard of Jesus and heard Jesus teach. And he comes and he asks those questions about eternal life. And Jesus says, okay, uh, we'll sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And so he goes away very sad. But Jesus talks about that precise type of response in Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. And he says, and the one to whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and mark this, the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And he becomes the example multiple times of Jesus's observation that holding on or trusting in money creates a difficult barrier to salvation and it's easy to lose perspective. Sometimes the greater the accumulation of wealth then the greater the feelings of security and, and the greater the feelings of insulation from disaster and a greater feeling of self-sufficiency which all work against an understanding of how we are to manage what the Lord has given us in his sovereignty. When you have a lot of things, it's easy to believe that you have everything that you need. That was the rich young ruler's issue. That all is well in your life when you have a lot. And that you don't have any pressing needs, see? And that you're obviously being blessed by God. Even that can be something that you'll deceive yourself by. Well, the Lord must be blessing me. Look what I have. I must be doing what he wants me to do. And it also offers some alternatives on what's important to life. And these are all deceptive feelings, as we saw last time, and they can be a big obstruction to saving faith. And so we want to avoid those kinds of things. And because of the deceptive nature of our own heart, for the believer, there can be some big obstacles to living a life that's honoring to the Lord through what you have. So not just the unredeemed, as we saw with the rich young ruler, but even the redeemed can have a, a skewed perspective of what's important. And we saw, as we saw from Luke 12 or 16, we're to work our business and be rich towards God. So there are many more passages that we, uh, we will look at that will enrich us, I think. So we're going to take care of a few more, and then we're going to really change our focus a little bit. But earlier, we were looking at suggestions to changing the direction we were going to go. And, and uh, Luke 3.2 is a perfect example of John the Baptist doing some of this same thing, kind of turning the, the conversation towards these things that really mattered. I'd like you to look there, if you would. I'm not going to put those slides up because these are so important as cross-references. Whatever you have as far as a Bible goes, you can look uh, there in the seat in front of you. You'll find New American Standard, which is what I'm going to teach out of. But if you have your tablet, whatever it is, you can, you can use these as cross-references, and you may see them in the margin. But in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, um, we're John the Baptist. It's the time of John the Baptist's teaching. It's pre-Jesus' beginning of his ministry. Jesus is alive, John the Baptist is teaching, and verse 2 says, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, see where we are, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and you remember that whole story, right? And so, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, lots of questions come up anytime I do Q&A, that, that typically comes up on a regular cycle, so I'll just footnote it here just to clarify the context. Uh, during the Old Testament purification rituals, and this is what we still are in here in this passage. We're still basically in the Old Testament. Jesus has not established the new covenant. And so these people are looking at John's teaching as they would have looked at the teaching of a prophet in the Old Testament. And during that time of New Testament purification rituals, Gentile proselytes, those are people who are not Jewish in heritage, but had come to uh, the faith in the one true God were baptized when they came to Judaism, Jews who accepted, and, and, and so they would be baptized. So Jews then who accepted John's baptism were admitting that they uh, had been like Gentiles. They had been far from the, go the Lord. They had walked in a way that wasn't pleasing to them and they, him, and they wanted to become the people of God. So they're coming, they're hearing John, they're hearing John teach, 
and they're wanting to be baptized as a sign of repentance that they've been doing wrong. And so that's where we are in context. Now, because of the convicting nature of John the Baptist's ministry, people were apparently coming and repenting in anticipation now, and we're going to see that later. We won't look at it, but you can see that transition to Jesus's ministry. And sometimes uh, the apostles run into people where we just had the baptism of John, and, and so they give them the gospel and they become uh, redeemed. But here, uh, they're, they're in anticipation of the Messiah. John is coming to pave the way for the Messiah. And this is why we see this wording that we see here. So in verse 4 it says this. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Verse 5. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight. And the rough road smooth. Verse 6. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. Verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds. So he quotes that passage. And then he begins to say, this is the time of that period. These are the beginnings of the end times. And he says this in verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, typically in a homiletics class in seminary, you probably won't get that as a lead sentence to say as you begin your message. Okay, People are responding and you say, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That tends to not influence people or make any kind of friends. But John, on the other hand, and Paul as well, uh, tends to not follow the typical conversations that we would learn in a homiletics class. And, and so we see this. He sees many people who are responding. And they are responding for any number of reasons. John is teaching and he's not sure why they're coming for this baptism of repentance. But he wants to be clear. And so he says, you brood of vipers... Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8, therefore, he said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So don't just come and be baptized because everyone else is and it feels good and it's the right thing to do and, and there's a lot of excitement and the crowd is kind of moving and, and all of that, okay? So he says, listen, if you're going to come do this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, we've talked about that quite a bit and so we won't go through that again. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God's able to raise up children to Abraham. So I'm coming because Abraham's my father and everything's good. And I just want to get right with God. And he says, listen, you need to think through your actions because there's a lot of things that are deviating from where you should be if you want to walk with the Lord. So don't say that, you know, don't just claim Abraham and you're going to be good. That's not going to work. Indeed, verse 9, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So just a little bit of a warning of what's going to come. You need to respond. And he says, don't, you know, bear fruit under repentance. And as he was saying this, the crowds are convicted. And they're wondering what that fruit should look like. And as you and I probably would be too, bear fruit that leads under repentance. We're excited about the preaching. We want to go forward and do what everybody else is doing. John says, you're a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You know what? The ax is already at the tree. They're going to lay it. Uh, it's going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So now you're concerned. Well, you know, they know they've been living a dishonoring life. That's why they want to be baptized. And so they say, then, look at verse 10, then what shall we do? That's the right question, isn't it? What shall we do? And when we read the word of God, what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? That's precisely the question we ask. When you read, read the word of God on a regular basis every day and you go through the commands, then you read those commands and you say, okay, so what should I do? And then you begin to evaluate your own life. That's how, that's how you interact with the word of God. And so they're doing the same thing. And they say to him, what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. So, 
share what you wear and what you eat with those who have none, and that will show a transformed heart. That's a fruit of repentance. See, this is not work salvation. You don't get to buy your way in. Salvation is by grace through faith. But this indicates that the individual understands what they've been doing is wrong and that they've turned from it. That's the idea. Okay, now look at verse 12. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. So we see Zacchaeus kind of represented here. And perhaps he was in this group. We, we don't know. I'm sure there are many in this group who later became part of the church. I don't think that that's, that's a big stretch. There's a big crowd here and they are listening to John teach and he's paving the way for the Messiah. So some tax collectors are there and, and they, of course, we know about them. We talked a little bit about that last week. They said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. So that gives a little idea of what Zacchaeus had been doing and why he was so wealthy. He was collecting more than he was allowed to collect and he used extortion and, and, and some uh, a little pressure on them. Well, I'll just turn you in for you know, that cow you sold that you didn't pay any taxes on or whatever. See, so pay a little extra so he's wealthy and, and John the Baptist just cuts right to it. He says, listen, if you're a tax collector, don't, don't try to figure out ways to collect more than is required. Just, just to line your own pockets. Stop doing that. If you're going to come and be baptized under repentance, then that's what you're going to need to let go of. And then verse 14, some soldiers were questioning him saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he turned to them and said, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. And if you're a soldier, it would be pretty easy to do any of those things. I mean, you're carrying your weapons along, you're well-trained, you might be with some of your buddies and you meet a couple people along the street and you shake them down for what they have and just, you know, give me what's in your pocket. And, you know, uh, if you don't, I'm gonna falsely accuse you, I'm gonna slap you in irons, I'm gonna carry you up to the magistrate and have you thrown in jail. So there's a lot of power there. And so some soldiers are standing there and they're like, what, what are we supposed to do? Well, if you're a soldier, you know, um, take only what you're paid, you know, what you're paid. And, you know, be content with your wages you receive. Don't shake somebody down. Do what you're supposed to do. Do your job well and just be content with what you have. And, and to isolate our principle, here's the question. What, what was every definition of repentance from John the Baptist focusing on? Every single one. What was it? Material possessions, right? I mean, if you, don't, if you have food and somebody else doesn't, share it. If you have a t two tunics and somebody doesn't have one, give it away. If you're a tax collector and you're taking more than you should, don't do that. If you're a soldier, don't shake somebody down for money. Be content with what you have. Every single thing. Isn't that interesting? And if you look at, you know, shortly after the church was formed in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, you kind of back into this idea, again, because it was so common. It's not overt, but it's just kind of, uh, you kind of see the actions here. But the change brought about by salvation of the early saints was partly expressed, mark this, in their willingness to give away the things that they possessed in order to meet the needs of others in the early church. And if you read those passages, that's just obvious. If you had something and you could meet the need of someone else, then people did it. That was not unusual. And, and as we saw just a moment ago with John the Baptist's teaching, this is something that they had a, had a hard time with before salvation. Because no doubt some of the men and women who were currently in the church and doing these very things now who were redeemed had been precisely the ones who had said to John the Baptist, teacher, then what do we do? And he had given them that instruction. So they began to learn how God expects us to deal with what we've been given. 
And they knew that everything that they had came from God and they had learned that he owns it all and they knew that he gives it to whomever he wills and, and they knew that they were supposed to work hard and just do their job and be content with their pay and they had learned that as part of discipleship and as soon as they received anything, then it became a test of stewardship. So it wasn't hard stretch for them to say, okay, well, if I have something extra and you need something, obviously the Lord's provided that for me to help you. Now, let's look back to Jesus because the early church obviously understood his emphasis and his warnings. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 21. Will you do that? Luke 21. And over the last several weeks, we've looked at some parables. This coming one is not a parable. Neither was the one with John the Baptist. This is an actual story, a real story. And the main character is the opposite of the rich young ruler and, and the rich businessman. And, and the remarkable nature of the story is that it is an illustration and it's a teachable moment taking place right in front of them. Let's read it. Turn to Luke 21, verse 1. And Jesus is talking about Jesus here. Luke is talking about Jesus and has some uh, actual quotes from Jesus. But Luke says this, And he, that's Jesus, looked and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. Verse 2, And he saw a poor widow uh, putting in two small copper coins. Verse 3, And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Let's pause right there. I'm sure you've read the story. It, it is fairly common in the Gospels. A widow comes and puts two coins into one of the collection boxes. Now each of those coins was worth about 1 64th of a denarius. And a denarius was worth, as you know, a day's wage for a common labor. We've talked about that numerous times over the last couple of weeks because they are part, that understanding is part of the stories that we've looked at. So to make this realistic today, if we just take an average yearly income of say $36,000 and you divide that by 365, that's about $98 a day. And you divide that by 64 because each coin was worth 1 64th of a day's wage. And that equals about a buck 54 times two, that's $3.08. So, in today's economy, that's what she had to live on for that day, $3.08 for the entire day. So, she really didn't have anything, did she? She was right down, this is poverty. So, Jesus sees this happening and he says to her, verse 3, truly I say to you, this is absolutely the truth, you can count on this, he says, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they out, all out of the surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And Jesus, of course, knows what her means are. It's not a secret to him. And so she comes into the court of women to offer her worship to God, and part of her worship was that she gave all that she had. Now, while this is happening, Jesus' disciples aren't paying attention to this. They're looking at something else. Luke 21.5 says, look there, and while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. So this lady comes in, Jesus is watching. They're not looking at that. They're looking at all the beauty in the temple. They're looking at all the mar marvelous gifts that have been given and, and, and no doubt uh, saying, wow, this is so great. The Lord must have really blessed them and, and all, the, all the deceitful kinds of thinking that goes along with, with wealth. So when Jesus comments on her gift and he told them that she had given all, they, all that she had, they probably thought he was gonna say, compared to all of this, and all this beauty and all these huge gifts, what possible good could two copper coins accomplish? He probably thought he was going to say something like that. Or 
See how foolish that was? That's everything she had to live on. But he didn't say that. He didn't question the motivation behind what she did. He didn't question whether her actions were prudent or not. He just said, verse 3, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And we've looked at that before, haven't we? As we think about being generous and sacrificial and, and faithful and giving, we're not talking about only when you've got your bonus, only when things go well, see? And again, Jesus just underlines that they all gave out of their surplus. So they maybe gave a 100 or a 1,000 or 10,000 times what she gave, but they gave out of their surplus. So in heaven's eyes, who was the most effective worshiper? Who was the one that got heaven's attention? The one who gave the most, right? In relation to what she had. And really at that moment, without her being aware at all, because I'm sure she didn't see Jesus watching, she became the best example and the model of generous, sacrificial, willing, and faithful giving. The rich businessman was the poster of the bad example, wasn't he? Rich in everything in the world and poor in everything in heavens, right? Remember that? I'll build more barns and I'll store all my stuff and everything will be good. There wasn't anything wrong with him being wealthy. There wasn't anything wrong with him working hard, expanding his business. What was the problem? The problem, Jesus said, was he was rich in the world and he wasn't rich at all in heaven. And this widow, which everyone overlooked, no doubt, right then and perhaps most of her life, became the poster of the good example. And, and very simply, Jesus makes it clear by valuing what she gave more than everyone else's that it's better to have everything in heaven and nothing on earth than what? Everything on earth and nothing in heaven. And I don't know about you, but with what you know so far about how God provides for those who are his, would you say that she was less secure than before when she walked out of the temple? Was she any less secure, beloved, after she put in all she had to live on and she walked out than she was when she walked in? And the answer to that is no. Why? Because the Lord distributes to those who are his as he sees fit and takes care of the needs that people have, right? So she was no less secure, and she obviously knew this, did she not? Otherwise, you're not going in and putting everything you have in your bank account into the, the treasury, are you? If you think you've generated it all and you're responsible for your security, and that's precisely what we were talking about at the, in our opening illustration. People are bound by this foolish thought that they've been in charge of their security and their finances all their life. And that's this feeble rope you could break loose of, but you think you have it, so now you're a slave to everything, see? To the worry of tomorrow, and wow, if the last six weeks haven't, haven't illustrated the worry of tomorrow for people, nothing will. Because many people have lost most of what they've invested in the stock market and they won't live long enough to see anything like that and recover at all. But here's the question, was your security wrapped up in that? Because if it was, then this is a big problem. But if the Lord's provided everything for you and he can provide it at any time, at any point, whenever he wants to, then you're not worried about it, are you? And this really reveals what our true character is and whether or not we love money by the biblical definition, not by our own deceitful hearts. But here, obviously, was she any less secure than before? No. Were her needs going to go unmet? No, because they've already been met up till now and she was not concerned that they would be met in the future. And between the three examples, the rich young ruler and, and the wealthy businessman and this lady, 
it's easy to see that material wealth becomes this barometer of your spiritual condition, doesn't it? And please note Luke 21.1. He looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And, and Mark, uh, Mark 12.41 says this. It says, and I love this because then we can see actually the situation. But Mark, Mark says it this way. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. So he's sitting there with the purpose of watching what's going on in a place where he could see people come and go and give their offerings. And this is, anytime I read this, it's very interesting to me that he's doing this because we have a, we have a real problem with that, don't we? We, we want everything to be done in secret, and I, I get that, and, and you know, Matthew does say that, that you're giving be done in secret, not with the big check that's you know, four feet by two feet with your name on it, make sure everybody knows that you're giving, you know, 10,000 or whatever, that you're giving me done in secret. But we're, we're all, we got, we're kind of weirded out about that, aren't we? Jesus is sitting there watching. You know, he wanted to sit and watch this process. He deliberately sat down at the right spot. Why is that? Well, your first answer should be because he owns it all. And he does, doesn't he? So why is he sitting there? Well, because he owns it all. So it shouldn't be any more surprising to us that he wanted to do that than for our earthly bosses to want to have an accounting for what you do with company money. That's perfectly normal. We should expect that, right? If the, if the boss gives you a certain amount to invest in the company for the better of the company, you can expect that later there'll be some type of accounting for that, right? If you have an expense account and you're supposed to go out and you're supposed to generate clients and you're supposed to travel around and do these kinds of things, there's gonna be accounting at the end of the time, okay? You know, we have certain, certain amount of money in this expense account for you to go out and do the things you're supposed to do and how are you doing with it? Uh, you know, if you have research and development money and you're in charge of that, you know, there should be some stuff going on and some new stuff coming down that you've, you've used that money well. And we, we, we're not surprised with that, but we're surprised when Jesus is watching. See? And so I, I want to say this now. Would it surprise you if Jesus is still doing that right now? Knowing in Revelation 2.1, which tells us in the church age, Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are the different kinds of churches, as you remember from our study. And he walks among the churches in the church age and he examines what's going on there. The angels watch. We've looked at numerous passages. They desire to look into those things of salvation. So would it surprise you that he's still doing it now? And I think we could say, beloved, with near certainty that he is still watching people come and go and give their offerings. And you know why, don't you? Because what we do with the money we have is his business because he owns it all. And the reason he wanted to watch then is still the same reason he wants to watch now because we reveal our spiritual character by what we do with it. And so perhaps he's saying many come and give out of their surplus. And maybe he says, and these give out of their poverty. And maybe he's still watching that. See, which is perhaps why we see over and over again those basic principles that deal with giving. Sacrificial, generous, faithful. Because that's precisely what the widow did and he watched and he's still walking in the church and watching and everything we have is still owned by him and he still gives it to us. So it shouldn't surprise us at all. And of course, we, you know, the scripture narrative doesn't give us that, but I don't think that that's a big stretch. And that's a humbling thought, isn't it? But perhaps they need a reminder from Revelation 2 that he walks among his churches and what he was interested in while he was on earth, he's surely interested in still. And so an important fact and perhaps one that can cause you probably no, maybe no real concern because you're doing what you should, but maybe 
a little bit of a twinge if you're concerned the boss is going to show up and ask. We could go on and on with the teachings of Jesus on the subject. He spent more time teaching about material things than he did about heaven and hell combined. And so there's plenty on this topic that we could go through. But that is more time than we can give to the study and still come back to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in a reasonable amount of time. But I think we get the substance pretty well, don't we? I think we can understand the biblical perspective of acquiring money as we see this. It's just a few scriptures where Jesus segues into that next thing. We're going to look at a biblical perspective. Is it okay for me to pursue this to get it? Is it okay for me to work hard? Is it okay for me to have something? And so I, that's our next step, and we'll look at it in just a minute. But there's some segue passages. One of them is found in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. So Jesus is teaching here. It's going to take us into our next section. But Jesus is teaching here, and he says this, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so the cost of discipleship, obviously, here. Verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, Jesus says, If you acquired an enormous sum of material wealth, what good would it do if you traded your soul for it? So, it's really the biography, if you, if you will, of the unredeemed world. What will they trade their soul for? And we, we, we saw at the beginning of the coronavirus, we have numerous politicians who sold off all of their, all their stock. They set in on a security briefing, and then what they do? Go and just liquidated everything. And now they're going to be in trouble. What did they do? They, they gained the whole world in what? And sold themselves out, didn't they? And so that's the obvious ones, but there are many ones that go on, many, many millions that go on nobody knows about, right? But that's the biography of the unredeemed world. With fluid morals and fluid integrity, you know, willing to move the line to accommodate a large windfall if needed. You know, here's my line, here's what I won't do, but hey, if I can get this, maybe I'll move the line a little bit and I'll still do it. And so that's Jesus' warning. Still on the back of discipleship, hey, what's, what's your price? But we can really sum up Jesus' teaching, I think, from Matthew 6, verse 19. Or he says this, he says, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. In other words, setting your store like the rich uh, businessmen did, that's where you're going to put your wealth. Don't just do that. Obviously, the Lord knows what you need. He provides those things. We saw it earlier in this, this particular passage. But do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. That's riches stored here perish, riches stored in eternity don't perish. And where thieves break in and steal, so riches stored here are vulnerable, riches stored in heaven are secure. Verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And there's that whole heart character thing that goes along with this valuing and, and, uh, and, and how you look at material things. And that really captures everything he said in all of those situations, doesn't it? In, in all the illustrations we had and the, and the parable of the sower and the seed and Zacchaeus and all, all those stories, this captures everything, doesn't it? If we place our affections on things on the earth, that's where our money will go, see? And that indicates where our hearts are. And if we place our affections on things that are eternal, that's where our money will go and that's also an indicator of where our heart is. See? And what was the, the widow's? Where was the widow's heart? Really a simple choice. Money wasted on earth, along with that, a life used up on things that don't matter, or money invested in heaven, along with that, a meaningful life on earth. And he says later in Matthew 6, I guarantee that you'll have what, what you need here. See. remember reading a number of stories about very wealthy people from our past. Andrew Carnegie was reported as saying, quote, 
millionaires aren't noted for smiling, end quote. Henry Ford used to say that he was happier when he was a mechanic. John D. Rockefeller said that he made millions, but no happiness came with them. Cornelius Vanderbilt said the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. And, and once again, beloved, I, you know, we've looked at this, but I just want to reaffirm, God isn't looking for poverty. You know, that doesn't prove you're holy because you have nothing. Like the, the monks of old, right, who, who used to wear their clothes until they rotted off and, and they took a, a vow of poverty and never, never did anything or bought anything new or anything, or, or the Amish perhaps who, who eschew every modern convenience. See, So the question is, how much of the layers of the onion do you need to peel off until you're right where you need to be and God's happy? So God's not looking for the vow of poverty. See, He's not looking for you to give. If you give up everything now, you're not more in God's favor than you were if you didn't. Because there's no reason to imagine, beloved, that the businessman from Luke 12 would have been uh, rich in the things of God as he was in the things of earth that he wouldn't have been pleasing to God, right? I mean, there's, there's no, we don't see any indication in the scripture that this rich businessman who wanted to build the barns and store and expand his business wouldn't have been just as pleasing to God uh, as any other saint if he'd been rich in the things of heaven too. Because the Lord's the one who gives you the power to get wealth. And we're going to see that in a few weeks. That it's the, one, it's the Lord who's the one that gives you the ability to do what you do. And he owns everything anyway. So it all comes from him. And 1 Timothy 6 says, those who are rich in this world to be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share. So obviously there's going to be some with a lot. There's going to be some with some and some with hardly any. And it depends on how you evaluate it and how you use it. What you do with it is where your heart is, see. So I don't, think it's, it's, I don't think it's a stretch to say the businessman, if he'd been rich in the things of heaven, wouldn't have been pleasing to God. But I think it's prudent also to remember the widow and, of course, the Macedonian believers who were very much like her, who were in, their, in extreme poverty and had very little, but gave what they were able and above what they were able. So God expects sacrifice in relation to giving, and, and you're not less secure either way. Now, I'd like us to look at a related topic. It's a biblical view of acquiring wealth. And then we're going to move right from there, kind of in the middle. And, and because I don't want to spend a lot of time in any one of these things, but these serve as a foundation. We're not going to exhaust all the possible topics here. But just these ones, just because the, I think the culture kind of wars against some of this. And so I want to give you a biblical perspective of this. But biblical priorities for the use of wealth. So what is the priority? Because that's the next question. After you figure out where it all comes from and, and how God distributes it, then what's my priority? And the, the Bible gives us that as well. So we're going to look at that as at, and it may surprise you, of course, what the Bible says about that. And we have really barely scratched the surface of what God has to say about acquiring material possessions. But, but uh, we have looked at the biblical answer on whether money is moral, because that's something the culture seems to rail at. Uh, we get these false moral people railing at people who have things. I heard Jeff Bezos became a trillionaire this year. Um, it's not surprising, is it? In the middle of uh, all the ordering in Amazon, he should... And is that bad? You know, I had this conversation with my with my sons, you know, is it bad that he worked hard and he, he was, had enough foresight? No, but people rail at him. He's immoral because he has so, it's immoral that he has so much and other people have little, right? And so that, we saw that's false. That, that's, all that is is just, um, uh, you know, money's neutral. If someone's corrupt or immoral, money will allow them to multiply that corruption. It can reveal a corrupt character, but it can also reveal a godly character, right? A lot of, a lot of wealth can reveal a very godly character that was already in place, but in and of itself, it's, um, it's neutral. 
Now, as we looked at the biblical view of acquiring wealth, really framed inside the question we asked several weeks ago to determine whether we love money. So you're going to bring that knowledge in. And, and, then, and again, like whether money is moral or not, in the middle of a society uh, in which some embrace the idea of income equality and some uh, want forced redistribution of wealth, see, which is really just sins of covetousness and lust marked in fake morality. Okay, so make sure you understand that, beloved. Don't, don't buy into that whole thing of, of forced redistrib- redistribution. It's just, that's just lust and covetousness. That's all that is. Masked in a fake morality. So, but in, the, in that environment, then the question is, is it okay to have something? More than just the basics if God has allowed that. And in order to set the stage for those questions, just a few things to ponder as we prepare uh, to close our time out together. Things that you may have thought about that uh, we'll see are really foundational in the scriptures, but I want to give you some things to begin to think about that we're going to see, but I think it's important to begin to kind of ruminate on them, if you will, and then as we get to the passages, you'll say, okay, I see where, I see where that's the case. And we mentioned this last week as a foreshadowing. Number one, God's created a material world. That's just obvious, right? It's made up of things that are meant to be used up. Minerals, chemicals, resources, a vast quantity, all those kinds of things. Number two, the world was not created to last forever. We can clearly see that from the Word of God. Our physical laws tell us it's winding down. It's wearing out like a garment. And like a worn-out garment, it will be thrown out. God has already told us that, actually, in those exact words. He said that heaven and earth will be, will what? They will pass away. It wasn't made to last forever. You know, the humpback whale wasn't made to be eternal. You know, the spotted owl. Sorry, pal. You're not made to last forever. Okay? And we could really look at it this way. The world we live in is a natural world, and thus it's temporary, and it's disposable. It's not eternal. And I know this all sounds very simplistic, but we're warring against a culture that has made things not important, very important, and made things very important, not important at all. But, beloved, this is a biblical worldview which has been dramatically skewed by the culture and PETA and Sierra Club and green thinking and and observations of global warming and Greta Thunberg and Bill Nye, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. All of those people all contribute to this false thinking. They continue to shout more loudly than everyone else does. And so people begin to think about it. Well, is this how it really is? And what should I be doing? And, and I know that we can take this in the wrong way and be, you know, this, this natural world and be self-serving and be greedy and be callous in our use of the world. And I'm not saying that we should be. I'm just making a general biblical observation that we reside in a no-refund, no-return world, if you will. It's not going to be recycled. The world we live in will be used up, and then it's going to be destroyed, and a new heaven and a new earth will be spoken into being by the Lord. And that really flies in the face of everything we constantly hear, that the earth and the heaven are millions upon millions of years old, and everything was fine until man evolved, and he's the one who's destroying everything, and he's the big problem, and the earth pe- perpetuated itself until man came along, and now it's, in, now it's in peril. See, that's what we hear, but that's not true. But a biblical view of all that is that we live on a young earth that was created to be used up, and when it is used up, God will dispose of it and make a new one. And there isn't some cosmic plane, and there's no mother earth and no mother nature. The earth and things on it, with the exception of men and angels, do not have souls. They are, they are on earth, and they're not eternal, and they do not have eternal destinies. They were put on the earth, beloved, to support Adam and Eve and all their descendants, and you and I fall into that category. And those things were put here for a brief time to support our lives and provide for our needs and make our lives comfortable and enjoyable for us. 
The only thing of eternal value created on this earth is mankind. And these observations from Scripture are not complex. They are demonstrably true. But if you went to nearly any college campus around the world and you said those things just like I said them, they would look at you as if you had two heads and classify you as anti-science and a lunatic. But these are not hard to understand and they are very clear in the scriptures. It's just that we've been listening to falseness for so long, it seems to have taken on a life of its own and it just becomes this axiom that must be true. And so I just want to start here because this is just very basic biblical understanding of a worldview. Because in this area, among others, Satan and his demons have influenced the culture and fooled them into believing a lot of lies in order to get the unredeemed world to be concerned about things that don't matter and forget about things that do. For instance, we go to Florida quite often. Did you know you can be fined $10,000 for disturbing a sea turtle nest? But you can kill a human being anytime you want and we'll use taxpayers' money to make sure you can do it. If there's any illustration of the upside-down nature of the philosophy of the world, that has got to be it. And I've said that numerous times. I see the sign on the Florida beaches all the time, $10,000 fine for disturbing this nest. Oh, but kill a human anytime you want. Do you see? The only thing that's of eternal value forever is humans, and the world was made for them and to support them, and that's the least valuable thing in the culture, and everything else is more important. Remember, there's a big difference between man and everything else on the earth. Man was created in the image of God and has an eternal soul and everything else does not. And man was given the authority and the dominion over everything that was created and all of those other things, no matter how majestic or how similar in design, they just point to a single designer, God, and his unique and spectacular ability to create. But they will all pass away, every single one of them. But every man and woman will live forever. And all those other things, those material things, they're created by God for man's use and for the comfort of men, as we saw in 1 Timothy 6. God has created all things for us and given us all things richly to enjoy, see? And for the richness of life, and when you look at them correctly, they illustrate for us in no small detail, beloved, the gracious nature of God's character, that he has given all these things. That just, if, it, if that doesn't demonstrate the gracious nature of God's character and his ability to, to make things, to make life wonderful, that does right there. See? And these things God has made for men are extended to all men and they are part of his common grace. And we've looked at this before. His general graciousness to people. In other words, even the wicked receive the blessing of the material world, don't they? Jeff Bezos does. And many, many millions of other people who do not know the Lord, they don't give thanks to him or glorify him, but they receive the benefit of this world. Why? Because it was created for men and women. And they can enjoy it. And all of these resources for richness of life and the richness of his creation, it's all part of his common grace. And many, many receive that. See? And it would be part, no doubt, of the judgment he, that he brings on the unredeemed world. Family and, and vacations and, and richness of life and all that, that's all going to be part of the judgment. You neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him. Now, in the time remaining, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And we're just going to be here just for a minute. And we're going to wrap up. And we're going to begin our journey through a biblical understanding of acquiring wealth. And we'll begin to see these things that we've been talking about as we look at these passages. And I just want to read them uninterrupted. I'll try not to comment. Before we came to, um, 
before we came to the into worship today I just I was praying in my office there's so much so much of this that I feel very passionate about and and I just get really stirred up my boys know this we talk about it so much and I don't want to lead us down a rabbit trail which takes you away from the glory of God and and his majestic uh, creativity and all that he's done and so I want to get back to the passage and and I want us to look all the way through we'll go all the way to verse 26 uninterrupted Genesis chapter 1 and I'll read to verse 26 before I say anything so let's look there if you would Genesis 1 if you would, um, 1 through 31. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, verse 5, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. Verse 6, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Verse 7, God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. Verse 8, God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Verse 9. Then God said, let the waters below and the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 10. God called the dry land earth, and, he, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seeds in them. And it was so. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 13, there was evening and there was morning a third day. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. Verse 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. Verse 17, God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Verse 18, and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. Verse 19, there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Verse 20, then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Verse 21, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 22, God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Verse 23, there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. Verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let's stop right there for just a second. And beloved, as you think through this process, you can see that there is a huge difference between everything else and man. And Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 confirms that for us. Just flip forward there to verse 7. 
Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Man being the chief of God's work and being intended to be the Lord of all the other creatures, we have here a more full account of his creation. The Lord took some time to tell us about it. The word rendered he formed is not used concerning any other creature. God breathed into man the breath of life. Hebrew, the soul of lives. That's how that reads. That is both natural and spiritual, temporal and eternal. And man became, it says, a living being. Nefesh chaos. Man received his life as a distinct act of God's breath. The animals received life from God, but man received God's breath personally, ascribing to him in our image. And that's a brief but very important distinction. Men and women are not just another animal on the face of the planet. And then verse 26 picks up. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Speaking of man, he says, Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, just to be clear. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pause right there. And those commands to God's special creation, the human race, help us understand what we said before. And it answers some questions about why the earth was made and what God intended to happen on it. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So fill the earth, have children. And don't buy this, there's too many people on the earth lie. That's just one more lie on top of all the other lies that get laid on top of people. God hasn't rescinded any of these commands. It's precisely what he said. And he confirms that children are a blessing and an inheritance later in the Old Testament. Jesus himself said that children are a blessing. So don't buy it, beloved, that the earth is too crowded. And just as a footnote, did you know that everyone on the face of the planet could live in Texas? Now, Texans don't want everybody on the face of the planet living there, no doubt. But they could. Because in Texas, there is 7,737,966,951,600 square feet in the state of Texas. So if you move about 7 billion people there, everybody has 1,105 square feet to live in, and that's more than the average apartment in New York City. So don't buy this whole thing that the world is too full, okay? Or that it can't support more people on the planet. The Lord created the planet for people and said, fill it up. And it isn't. And don't pretend that it is. In fact, some countries are trending down in their populations. In fact, more people are dying than being born. Now, what's going to happen in a little while from now? And China already suffers through this with a single child law, and they've suffered with it for quite a while. Their economy would be bigger, except they don't have anybody to what? To fill up the jobs. If you haven't read anything about that, you should. That's pretty interesting. And it's going to be a long time before they will have people who can fill up the jobs. And maybe that's just as well. The Lord is bringing judgment on China. And I wouldn't be opposed to that in his own sovereignty. But the fact of the matter is this. Fill the earth, see? 
Subdue it, tame it, harness it, control it, bring it under subjection. The whole creation is for man to subdue. That's the, that's the rule. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the earth. Rule over the living things he's made. Subdue them and harness them. Why? Because they're for you. This is God's plan, the material earth, full of resources. And Adam is instructed to harness them and, and, and the power and the wonder and the potential. Look at verse 29. Then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be for food for you. And to every beast on the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I've given every green plant for food and so it was so. And God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And this is the reality, okay? God gave this command to Adam and of course it's passed down to all humans who are the pinnacle of God's creation. And God made the material world to be subdued and eventually it would be discarded and he has already said that very carefully. And he only gave it for the enriching of men. He only gave it so you could live here, beloved. Do you understand that? That is so important and flies so much in the face of what you hear constantly in our culture. So if that's the case, then a couple of things I want you to think about as we depart today. There must be a correct way to acquire things from a material world out of the richness that God has given in his graciousness and his boundless generosity that's pleasing to him. There's got to be some way to do it if he's given it and told you to, to bring it into subjection. There's got to be some way to do that that's honoring to him. God didn't have to make a world like this, but he did, see? And it falls into that category of common grace. And number two, while that is happening, we need to remember that all the wealth is temporary. So as you realize there's a way to get things, realize that the Lord's going to burn all of them up every one of those things you acquire. That doesn't make them wrong. It just makes them temporary. See? He created it that way and he's already told us it's going to be, that's what's going to happen in the end. See? So as we thank him then for, for what we have and what we enjoy and the comfort that's extended to us, realize that it all comes from him and he gives it to us just for the joy and the richness that it adds to our lives as it provides for our needs. So keep that in your mind though that as you thank him for it, it's all going to be ash someday in the not too distant future. So hold on to them very loosely and don't be greedy. Number three, realize that there is no mandate from God for poverty. Here in Genesis, God affirms the goodness of all creation. There will be people who are in poverty, just as Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. There's nothing wrong with having a little bit. There's nothing wrong with having more. And he's made very clear that those have more to make sure that they take care of the people who don't have very much. And number four, this is it. We're going to close. Realize as you look around, and, and this kind of connects together, but I, it, it was just so clear over and over again. I want to say this. Realize as you look around the solar system, there is nothing like this planet. How would you like to live on Saturn? Yuck. But God could have created this very plain very harsh environment where we barely can eck out a living. He certainly could have done that. It was within his realm of doing it. It was no harder for him to create this planet than it was for him to create one that doesn't have all these benefits. You get that, right? So understand, as you look around our solar system, there isn't anything that compares to this. This is, this is the one. The special one made for people. And there's a lot more, but we're going to get to those things next time because we're out of time. I'm sorry, we've gone over just a little bit. But Lord willing... I just want to cover, I just wanted to cover at least this much. And I want to do that to encourage you. In the middle of all the, all the lies that get told on a daily basis, 
and I know that you already know this, and I'm not pretending that this is new to you. But a biblical worldview includes these things. Don't get caught up in all the, all the, all the malarkey of, oh, I hate using that word because somebody else uses that. Don't get caught up. He stole that word. My dad used to use that word. Don't get caught up in all of that stuff, okay? Because the Lord has created this for a special purpose, and it was for a special creation. And guess who that is? That's you. So I want to encourage you so you can bless the Lord for what he's done. Let's pray and we're out of time. Lord, I thank you today for a great opportunity to be together. Thank you for those who could come and fellowship. Thank you for those who are home fellowshipping with us and praying with us and reading your word and being encouraged by it. We're grateful for the expanded audience that uh, this, this little trouble uh, temporary time uh, on earth has allowed us to expand into a way that we can continue to minister to people who are far from us. Lord, thank you for all the men and women who have worked so hard to make that happen. Thank you for the blessings of fellowship and for love amongst brethren and for how many times over and over at this church they did precisely what you have given us to do. They have taken care of those who had need and saw that it was a need and took care of it before anyone even realized there was a need. And I'm so grateful for a church that's like this. And so in many respects, I'm just teaching to the choir who know very much how you've provided. But Lord, I know in a church our size, uh, with those who are watching at home and all that, there are some who have failed to understand this. There are some who've lived their lives much like we saw at the beginning, tied to a rope they could easily break, thinking they're somehow in charge of their own destiny and their own future and their own security. And if they have a lot, perhaps insulate, they think they've insulated themselves from disaster and from hardship and catastrophe and that things must be okay with me and God because I've got so much. And Lord, I pray that those deceptions will be all thrown down. And the lies of the world that get shouted so loudly, uh, Lord, will be drowned out in the, in the wonderful knowledge that you have made, all that you've made, and you made it for people who are your pinnacle of your creation and the only thing that made on this earth that has, it will last forever. So Lord, help us to get the right things in order. And Lord, as we know these things, help us to be careful to give out the gospel as we have opportunity to make sure as we go out from here where most people come to faith outside the church, help us to make sure that we are ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us. And Lord, as we continue this study, I pray that we'll do your will. It's not my desire to carry it in a certain way and somehow get an agenda over, but really to just lay a foundation so we can read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and say, yes, I can see how that's the case. I can see how this church understood this, and that's why they did what they did. Much like the, uh, the widow that we saw today who wasn't concerned about her future, obviously, because she knew who held it. So Lord, do your work in us as you see fit. Uh, guide us and make us new. Change our thoughts if they need to be changed. Help us not to hold on too tightly to what you provided. And if you've given us less recently and, and, and or maybe some uncertainty, help us not to be shaken for you own all the ca cattle on a thousand hills and the hills too. Everything in the earth and all its fullness belongs to you and you can give it to whoever you wish. And you have told us over and over that you've clothed these things on the earth with beauty and majesty and we're much more valuable than they are. So Lord, we trust you with all of that. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said, amen.